Hi folks and thanks for listening to this Tortoise Shack podcast. A little bit of housekeeping before we kick off, just to let you know that Shrapnel put out a two-part special, uh, separate podcasts with Professor Colin Harvey on Ireland's future and Let's Talk Loyalism's um, More Homes and they're both out right now on patreon.com forward slash tortoise shack. So if you remember, those podcasts are in your feed right now alongside over 1,300 of our entire back catalogue of podcasts from across the platform, be it Echo Chamber, Reboot Republic, Glow West, Built Different, Policed. They are all there in one place completely plea-free. And you don't just get access to those. You're helping to keep these mics on and conversations like the one you're about to listen to keep happening. We rely entirely on you, dear listeners, to pay it forward and keep it free for everyone. It is the easiest bit of activism you can do on a monthly basis. It's the price of a fancy cup of coffee to you, but it literally is bills paid and, and mics on for us. So one more time, it's patreon.com forward slash tortoise The link is in the top of the podcast. I'm shutting up now. Enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to the Shrapnel Podcast. It's me, your host, Sam McElwain. I get this back as always. And beside me, metaphorically speaking, is my pod brother, Gareth Mulvana. Hello, Gareth. How are you? Hi, Sam. Not too bad. How are you? I'm not too bad. It's We're midweek again. I think people are starting to count down to Christmas a bit too early at the minute. And they're scaring the life out of me with the number of weeks to go. Yeah, it's dark evenings are coming in, so that's know, the end of what... Well, there was no summer, but... It's the end of that time where we used to call it summer. Yeah, absolutely. Well, tonight we're joined by Stephen Miller. Uh, Stephen is a lecturer in anthropology and ethnomusicology. That's a lovely word. Um, his research and teaching focuses on music, conflict and the cultures of resistance, with an emphasis on Britain and Ireland. He's the author of Sounding Descent and currently writing a book about loyalist songs. How are you doing, Stephen? I'm very well, thanks, Sam. It's good to be with you and Gav this evening. Hi, Stephen. Good to good to meet you again. Good to see you. Yeah. Um, I'm going to kick off tonight because, for once, I actually did my homework um, and and did a bit of a, a read through and looked over things, and you've got a nice wee archive there of old loyalist tapes and sort of albums going on, and I have to say, there's quite a few covers there that I recognise that would have maybe been lying about in living rooms of, of family and friends growing up over the years. What drew you to this kind of music? Um, well, thanks for the question, Sam. So um, for me, I think there has been a, there's been a huge, uh, there's been a huge amount of interest in loyalist music, uh, particularly loyalist parading culture. So there's been lots of books, there's been lots of um, uh, journal articles, there's been lots of uh, newspaper articles, lots of TV uh, documentaries have been filmed about people who who partake uh, in band practices and, and band parades every week up and down Northern Ireland. But there's been far fewer uh, interest in people who write these uh, these loyalist political songs. Uh, and I think that they've, they've played a, an under-researched role in um, sort of contributing to loyalist culture over the years, um, so for me that sort of that sort of lack of interest in them more broadly um, sparked something in me, and I think it speaks to uh, something that's been going on here. It, it, there's a there's a direct connection with politics um, that's 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 caught up in these songs, um, and that was something that that really uh, that I wanted to sort of dig into. Um, I had done work on uh, Irish rebel songs, which, of course, there's been a, a lot of work uh, done on more generally. So for me, that seemed like the opposite side of the coin, if you like. So it seemed like an obvious place to uh, to begin within loyalism. And just when you're talking about Irish rebel songs, I know there's been the annual sort of brouhaha about the wolf tones and the uh, Celtic Symphony. And I'm just going to pull out of the drawer here. A wolf tones tape, which you know belongs to my late father-in-law, so even I have a wolf tones tape. Um, so, what's your take on the whole uh, annual event as it's become now? And it's, it, well, I suppose it's extended into Electric Picnic. What's what's your take on it, Stephen? Well, it's funny you say that, Gareth, because I was actually I was, I was invited onto RT Drive Time uh, a few days ago to sort of weigh in on that stuff specifically about Electric Picnic, and as you know. 
that's something that we are all too familiar with here in Belfast. So every single year, um, the the media uh, go over this stuff, and there's a there's a big um, there's a big debate about it in the media every year about whether it's appropriate that these songs uh, are sung and performed at the flat, uh, the at the failure rather, um, at the, the last night of the failure every year. Um, but I think the the thing about the electric picnic was particularly interesting because it was a different type of it was a different type of concert, uh, or di- different type of festival, and it was a different type of crowd uh, than the, than the, the crowds that are usually associated with the Wolf Tones, particularly in the Republic. Now, of course, the Wolf Tones um, and the Wolf Tones music means something different, I think, here in Northern Ireland than it does in the republic um it's it's a much um it's much more sensitive here in northern ireland than it is in the republic of ireland um, and i think that's something that has to be underlined it's, it's something that is obvious of course to, to people like us um, but i think it has to be underlined um so the the, the, the it's, a, it's a much more sensitive issue here and we need to be much more careful with it here um i think in that electric picnic environment I think there can be a sense of distance, if you like, that they have from this stuff, physical distance and temporal distance in the sense that um, many of these people were teenagers and were completely you know, insulated and removed from much of this sort of stuff in ways that people here in Belfast simply weren't. And not least at the, at the, at the, at the uh, failure, these are outdoor concerts that are performed in West Belfast for neighbouring communities and the Shankle can actually hear this music as well and indeed that sometimes forms part of the criticism that neighbouring communities can hear this music being performed that they find offensive. Now of course often we hear the other side of the coin is well of course people in national areas often hear uh, loyalist flute, flute bands playing music that they find offensive. Of course, these are debates again that play out every year, and there is no simple solution to these types of things. But again, the the, the complex dynamics are different between north and south, and I think that's something that has to be appreciated, you know, in the context of the wolf tones. Yeah, I think Tony was making the comment at the weekend on on the echo chamber that what happened at Electric Picnic was more sort of against the state. It was a rebellious sort of song against the Irish state and the situation of, of the government in the South. Um, but it's still still hard to listen to when you're from here that that's going on because they really don't understand us. Um, we, we tend to get a bit more sympathy from Republicans north of the border than the south of the border. And, and the fact that they understand that what happened here wasn't wasn't anything to be trivialised. It, it was quite brutal. And some of the songs do evoke those those sort of emotions and I understand also what a flute band can do to some people as well I understand that it can be very provocative and, and can be very hurtful how how are we linking that music to each of those sort of communities how are we how does that become weaponized is not the right word but how does it become an instrument of inflicting more trauma on somebody where does that come from um, I, I think it Ultimately, people are, uh, are or can be socially conditioned to find these these things offensive. You know, like music isn't something that is in of itself offensive or or or, or nice. These things are completely socially constructed. Um, in your introduction, you mentioned that I'm an anthropologist and an ethnomusicologist, and something that that, that we do in our approach to the study of music is focus very much on this idea of music as a social construct, you know, this idea that um, we learn to understand and appreciate music in a specific uh, environment. Um, and so, so to sort of turn to, to what I'm doing at the moment with, with Loyalist Songs, I think one of the one of the reasons why um, when I've sort of gone to speak to people about these songs and, and trying to get them to sit down and, and talk to me about it, one of the reasons I think that they've been so receptive to it is because I've gone with that approach in mind. So initially, sometimes people have been quite sort of sceptical or sort of frosty because so much of these songs have had such a bad reputation, you know. So when people say the word loyalist songs, immediately some people associated with associated with sectarianism, for example, including people within those communities, um, to, to such an extent that they just think it's not worth their time to talk to people who would want to talk about these songs. And that can be a problem for people like me because sometimes it shuts down conversations before you can even have them. 
So there are people who I simply haven't been able to talk to about this research because they just haven't you know, be, been able to sit down with me because they just assume that I, I don't have uh, good intentions. But for those who have, sort of, that I've been able to get through that first stage, what I have been been able to say to them, and it's and it's the honest truth, is that the the the, the nature of this research is to get at what these songs seek to do in a social, political, and cultural sense. You know, like these these songs seek to tell stories. They 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 seek to sort of uh, illuminate social and cultural ideas that are are, are uh, representative of the the struggles and the ideas of the communities that they're they're, they're representing. Um, and I think once you can sit down with people and you can say that that's really what you're interested in, you're interested in the stuff that's behind the songs, behind the music and things like that, then people start to become much more sympathetic and they will sit down with you and they'll talk to you about it and because they realise that you're not there to sort of rubbish them for being like simplistic or, or, or whatever. Like you're actually genuinely interested about what these songs are trying to tell you about about those people and about 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 where they're from, you know. Um, and just to sort of pick up on something else you mentioned. So you'd you'd mentioned um, some of these songs that you'd sort of checked out. So just for anyone who's curious, that's a, presumably you're talking about this sonic archive that, that I've um, sort of begun to create. So myself and, and uh, one of my colleagues, uh, Stephen McCann, we've, we've begun to construct this thing called the Sonic Archive. So like you can access it at uh, sonicarchive.net. Um, and it's this uh, resource whereby what we're trying to do is, is fight, uh, put these things online digitally. So that people can go online and sort of find a space whereby they can access some of these songs, uh, either whether it's text or or the, the the recordings of them, to sort of listen to these as an example of um, a sort of a window into uh, the the sort of the issues and the the, the lives of, of the people that were that were living through these 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 uh, traumatic periods uh, during the the nineteen seventies nineteen eighties. Um, in Belfast and beyond, um, and again using sort of song text as primary documents, um, so that people can say, "Well, this is actually what was happening." And some of the some of the material contained in there is is pretty, um, you know, it's pretty harrowing stuff. But again, they're, they're historical documents. You know, that's how they're supposed to be read. You're not we're not trying to sort of glamorise these things. The idea is that they're there to to sort of be analysed. You know. Um, so for so for students who perhaps are overseas and can't get to to, to Belfast or to Northern Ireland, um, or for people who are just interested in this sort of stuff, the idea is that they can go there and they can start to like read into this sort of stuff. They can maybe use it to, you know, to do a student project or to find out some other information, um, and to sort of really learn more about the history of this place through songs uh, as sort of cultural texts. Um, and I've had emails from, from from people within the community, for example. Um, I had a lady contact me telling me that, like, um, you know, one of the songs was like our our, our dad's like favorite song. He's he's no longer alive anymore, but it was like a, 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 his favorite song. And she'd asked me about information about who wrote it and stuff like that. And this was a way like that she felt close to her father and stuff like that. You know, so there's there's sort of nice things that that come out of it as well. And, and these songs, you know, some of them are quite innocuous. You know, they're they're just about you know. Local people and events and things like that. So, um, so the idea is that it's 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 very it's 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 in its very early stages. But again, if there's anyone out there who has like old song books or old CDs and they would like to contribute them, and then if you could get in touch with Sam or or Gareth yourself um, and they want to send them in, that'd be fantastic. And we could try and digitize them, upload them. And the idea is that we're trying to get them out there, freely available for everyone to use. Again, it's a communal resource that everyone can sort of contribute to and really offer up so that everyone can share it and learn more about this place through some of the sort of material culture um, that was produced here, you know? Absolutely. And I'd advocate that. I mean, I think you've probably picked up on social media. I'm quite, I'm not for particularly loyalist um, newsletters from the 1970s. I'm a big collector of, of that sort of thing. So, And I think they're important documents that I think a lot of academics, well, certainly in my experience going through the sort of uh, PhD process, a lot of academics overlook those as sources, but they actually give an insight into what people were thinking at the time. And you've, you've touched upon two really interesting points there. First of all, people having a connection to family members or whatever through through the songs and you know she said it was you know someone saying it was her dad's favorite song uh, and sam knows about this i've had things where i put up 
um, you know, pen picks from the Orange Cross or stuff from the WDA News and sons or daughters have got in touch and said, I've never seen that before about my dad. So it, it's, it, it is a bit like we were talking to Robert Gibson last week about Bloody Friday. Okay, this is related to the Troubles. It's, it's a harrowing period and there's victims and perpetrators, whatever. But ultimately, for people of this generation, it's family history and it's the beginning of a family history. The other thing that I found really interesting that you talked about, Stephen, was the intent, the intentions that people think you have when you go into research this sort of quite niche subject within. It's it's almost like a subculture within a subculture, and I found that with the newsletters and you know I think Plum Smith talked about the hidden battalions and we're talking about welfare here and auxiliary, basically auxiliaries, you know, people behind the scenes who were not active in paramilitaries by any means, but they were certainly given support of some kind through welfare and, and fundraising, and they were part of that overall culture. And what I find when I approach people, and I'm thinking about somebody like Ed Spence, who I did a lot of work with on the Orange Cross, there's an initial sort of suspicion, as you say, that why does this guy want to talk to me about these newsletters I did 50 years ago, and why does he even think they're important? But it was only when I started talking to Ed and he brought out the big folder of the Orange Cross that he'd done with his dad, all the copies of it and related paperwork and loads of different things. It actually got him on that journey where he started to think, I actually want to write about this. And he did a wee talk down, well, I did a talk down in Prony at a prisons conference and it was about the Orange Cross and welfare and Ed showed off some of the handicrafts and talked from the floor about the Orange Cross um, and that that sent him off on his own journey in terms of recording that story. He wrote he wrote a little uh, booklet, uh, you know, and he got that story out there for posterity. So I think, although it might seem niche and it can be difficult to get into that sort of culture, particularly with the passage of time, it's it's well worth it because you're preserving really important artifacts and lived experiences. Absolutely, Gareth. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and it's funny, um, just when you were talking about Ed Spence there, uh, I um, I was 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 talking at a, I was talking at a conference last week. It was about um, it was about music and, and the politics of music and song, uh, and it was here in Belfast last week. And I was using uh, an example of, from your podcast uh, that, that from the episode that that, that Ed was on, um, and when he was talking about. Uh, when he was talking about how they had smuggled the um, or how they had got the, the recording device and then they had sort of retrofitted it so that they could try and capture the, the sounds and the signs of, uh, of Long Cash so they could get them out and sort of use it uh, to sort of try and illustrate what it was like uh, and he was just saying how unfortunately it was lost in a, in a subsequent raid but I thought that pointed to how um, the fact that they'd gone through this process of, of sort of trying to pretend that some of the inmates wanted to learn German and, and like trying to record it and then trying to smuggle it out just spoke to how important it was to have this sonic testament of what it what it sounded like inside the prisons. Um, and, uh, and and again that spoke to other things that that I've that I've, that I've, I've learned in my own in my own research, uh, and the the importance of of of, of recordings of, of prison recordings, um, because we've talked just there about the the importance of of, of physical texts of, of you know people writing uh, writing songs down and, and trying using these, but of course uh, recordings prison recordings were very important for uh, within loyalism as well to try and to try and you know to try and illustrate what was going on within that other side of sort of loyalist culture within loyalist prison culture within uh, Long Cash for example um, and again there's a you, you'll probably already know it but there, there are uh, there are recordings out there of loyalist prisoners who were singing songs and then subsequently releasing them, and those exist out there in the world. Um, and again, uh, that that's part of this that's part of this mosaic, if you like, if you like, that I'm sort of building of the different elements of loyalist song and that 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 point to what was going on during that period. So you've got things that were happening in a in a written sense. You've got guys who were, were, were writing songs. Um, you've got people who are recording songs in prison, 
Um, you spoke there about um, earlier mentioned about sort of fundraising and things like that. That played a massive role um, as as well. Um, guys like John Calvert, um, Loyalist Prisoners Aid, these types of things like they were uh, instrumental, uh, no pun intended, uh, in uh, in raising money uh, through the recording of, of sound and, and through writing uh, Loyalist songs. Uh, so John Calvert um, wrote a song, "Come All You Young Protestants," for example. Um, uh, which was a, a cover, obviously, um, but uh, or not a cover. It, it, bor- it borrowed as so many of these songs do. It borrowed on uh, pre-existing uh, melodies, um, but again, himself was a, a huge, impo- a hugely important person within loyalism. And then would would use would would use songs as a way to sort of like uh, as a vehicle, if you like, to to sort of to, to raise money. So like, for, so for me, the the, the sort of loyalist songs. Were were they were multifaceted? You know, culturally they were important because they 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 had a message that they that told people what they were trying to to, to achieve, and um, they set set out loyalism stall, if you like. Um, but then also they, they there was a there was a strongly practical side to it as well. They they helped raise money as as one uh, and one of my uh, interviewees put it. If we could raise money, it meant that young guys weren't having to like hold up uh, post offices and weren't going to jail, you know. So that was like, so I could break the break the cycle, if you like. Um, so like, I, I was checking out statistics. So I think at the high point between thirty five and forty five percent of UDA and U, UVF prisoners were in. Actually, at the high at the high point between thirty five and forty five percent of all. UVF and UDA volunteers were in prison, so that meant that their families had to be supported. So there was this huge apparatus that had to be uh, that had to be sustained to actually pay their fam to pay, pay to support their families, um, and all these welfare associations were were busy doing that. And of course, music was one way that they could do that. It was one very successful way they could do that through fundraisers, through concerts, through records. And um, so again, that's that's one avenue that I'm looking into in this book. Um, that that they were able to to do that. So sorry, this is a is a bit out of sync uh, chronology wise. Um, I'd, I'd hoped it would be much more uh, forensic that I could take you through this step by step. No, but it's, it's I great. I lo- lost lost my, my lost my thread a little bit. No, it's great. Don't worry about it. I mean, one of the, one of the names that comes up in 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 one of the articles I read, which which gave me a little chuckle, was Sammy Doyle. And mm-hmm. you know, I've I've heard about Sammy Doyle being well. Obviously, he was UDA, but he was he was quite a colourful character by all accounts. And I know when Sammy working, du- Sammy Duddy Sammy Doyle. You mentioned Sammy Doyle in one of your articles. He did a song with Ken Kerr. Um, mm-hmm. so it was "We'll Fight in the Bog Side." Ah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I don't know if you. Well, okay. So Sammy Doyle is very colourful character by all accounts. Um, you know, Billy Hutchinson talks about. Um, a meeting in the old park. I think it was in the Torrens. Um, I think in the in the early seventies when Sammy Doyle came up to him and said, mm-hmm. you know, um, you know, something along the lines of, you know, when did you join us or whatever? And right. Bill, Billy basically had to go back to him and say, I I'm not a member of the UDA. I run my own organization. You know, and but the but what makes Sammy Doyle colourful for me was I've heard from a family member of Sammy's. That he was actually he was a part time actor, basically. Right. And he appeared in some adverts pre Troubles on on like UTV. So I'm just thinking for your research, if you ever look at Sammy Doyle and go down that line, you know, if you look into the personalities, it'd be good to try and get into the UTV archive and see if there's any way of finding his sort of dalliances with the uh, commercial advertisement world. Right. But it, but yeah, it, but I, yeah. It also speaks to me that you know the these people. Particularly these people who are on the welfare side of things, they had very colourful sort of multi-layered lives like everybody does. But, you know, it's very evident that, you know, there's a reason why people don't sort of suddenly overnight decide I'm going to I'm going to be a singer because I'm political. You know, it's some people might think, OK, I want to support the cause by singing a few tunes. But there must be an ambition for people like Sylvia, particularly to get up on stage and if you transport someone like Sylvia Pavis, Sammy Doyle, you know, uh, Tony Jones, John Calvert, do another sort of UK city or Irish city or anywhere in the West, maybe they would have been entertainers in their own right. 
divorce from the political context. What what are your thoughts mm-hmm. on that? Well, I think I, I think many of those uh, people, if not all of them, are you know entertainers in, in their own right. You know, so I, I think um, I, I think they I think they would have a duality to them. You know, like I think they would have careers that are are. Um, you know that that aren't just. I don't think they're just pigeonholed. So like, so one thing that I've come across, like among all the the people who I've interviewed, there's no no one is solely a a, a loyalist singer. Like no one, um, like every, everyone performs in, in other uh, avenues as, as well, if you like. So no no one was able to sustain themselves economically um, by purely just doing that type of repertoire. There were there were some people who didn't. Uh, that, that, sorry, so I should clarify. That was people who whose jobs were musicians. If you like, you know, there were people who had other jobs, but j- then who would just perform loyalist songs. But if you were a musician as your job, then you also had to do other types of um, had to do other types of gigs as well. Um, but yeah, no, I, I I totally take your point. I mean, these these people were musicians first, I, I think, and then the, then the politics and all that sort of stuff came later. Um, and again, sorry, just sorry if I'm switching the chronology a wee bit. Um, but just to, but I think your point speaks to um, how loyalism's you know ultimate band, if you like, platoon was formed, if you like. So platoon it came out of uh, the 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 the. It came out of bands that were cabaret bands that preceded them, if you like. So uh, Candida and Yellow Pages existed in Belfast before that and then those those uh, the, the people who populated those some of them were sort of draw came out of those to sort of form platoon there was other people involved as well um so like again for me that speaks to your point about it's musicians that form the the, the political bands rather than the other way around if you like and um, the music comes first rather than the politics um and again just sort of to continue that if you like um you know that was uh, you know that was as I say they were like the they were the the, the ultimate if you like um, and of course that that was very much Gusty Spence's you know brainchild if you like and that fits directly with what he was trying to do in terms of like giving loyalism this wider cultural and and, and political vehicle if you like um, and it fits with his his, his sort of broader political program um, in order to give them something that. Uh, you know, was much more positive, and you know he he gave them material. He gave them he gave them material. He helped platoon materially, like through the Shankill Activity Centre, helping set that up, which they could use and you know record albums through and things like that. But then he also helped them culturally as well. He, you know, he wrote songs and poems which were featured on their albums, and then he even appears on uh, some of the albums as well, like uh, like giving the voice. Um, so on uh, uh, Gunrunners, for example, on that album, like it's his voice that's doing the the, the intro, what sort of monologue type thing. Uh, he's interviewed in a 1995 interview with Bobby Hanvey, um, and Bobby Hanvey's asking him about it. He's quite coy about it, as if it's maybe not him, but it's obviously him. You can tell he's got a very distinctive voice. In fact, I think um, Ed Spence, like his voice, is very similar to to Gusty Spence's voice. So at some points in your yeah, at some point the points yeah. in your podcast, I almost thought that's who I was listening to. Very know. similar. Um, Ed will Ed will like that. He'll he'll take that as a compliment. Um, yeah, I mean, the first time I met Ed, I was very disarmed by that because I'd heard Gusty speak, you know, on on TV and stuff before. Yeah. And then when I met Ed, it was like, oh my goodness, that's just like a yeah, skill skill down version of of Gusty. Yeah. The the voice is just exactly the same. Yeah. Sorry, Sam. No, I was just, we're talking about how so for some people who were musicians first and then became political with their music. I mean, somebody who was a musician, well, not a musician, somebody who played in a band and then became very political was the likes of Johnny Adair. I mean, yeah. in a far-right <laughs> punk band, you know, people maybe don't, don't realise and just think he burst onto the scene as as the bald-headed thug from the lower shangle if they want to portray him. Um, but no, there was a history to that as well. Do you want to talk us through what you know about that? Well, that's right. He played uh, played bass, didn't he? So he played bass uh, in the sort of right right wing skinhead band, Offensive he, he, Weapon. He held yeah. a bass. I don't know if he played uh, it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, although there's no record, there's no um, 
uh, Stuart Bailey writes about it in his book Trouble Songs, but there's no um, there's no recordings or anything of, of it, so uh, I don't think it's, there's no you know there's no verifiable musical evidence or anything. But I've but I've that, heard uh, I've heard anecdotally that there is. Um, or they, I thought they got. I thought they were scrubbed or something like that. Was that, that not I'll ch- I'll chase that up for you because I know a friend yeah. who was involved with the uh, Warzone Collective. Uh, ah, right, who knows yeah. somebody from that that era who might have a copy of of one of the offensive weapon tapes? Um, if right. if possible, I'll I'll try and get a copy for you if you, if you want right. to uh, you know sort of subject yourself to that. I'd be interested. Yeah, and 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 uh, Sam McCrory, he was in the band as well. Uh, and apparently, they played twenty concerts from nineteen eighty one to nineteen eighty four, and they covered songs like "Smash the IRA" and "Shove the Dove" by uh, Screwdriver. You know the English neo-Nazi group. Um, and the 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 chorus to that song made in Ulster was um, the IRA and communists are walking hand in hand. They're killing people in Ulster. They're killing off our land. Uh, so like there was so there was kind of these resonances, you know, um, uh, you know, like that 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 tie that connected what was happening here uh, with um, uh, you know far right politics in, in England and and and, and punk and far and far right sort of neo Nazi punk groups and stuff. Yeah, and you're saying there the the title of the song uh, "Shove the Dove." I mean, yeah. that, that, that became actually quite a synonymous statement at one point for anti-agreement sort of loyalist. Yeah. And you shove your doves, you know. So it does come back around, as you're saying, the chronological stuff. Um, I, I've listened to some of the older songs, um, some of the, what they call the traditional songs, and I've watched it develop over the years and how the songs have changed and, and become, at the time you're listening to it, they, they are modern. And then as you're 20, 30 years down the line, they are markers of history. I mean, some of the songs, some of the loyalist songs there, the, the, the wording, the people, the, the settings, they all, they all paint a picture. Now, I can relate to because I was probably there in those areas at those times. I can, I can picture the people. I can picture the scenes. But for anybody who's come the generation behind me, these are important ways of, of conveying the tapestry, if you want, of, of loyalist communities and, and what they were enduring. And those are the people out there who will say they're UVF songs or the UDA songs and they were terrorists and murderers. And that, that's fine. You take, take your point. But they are reflective of the time that they were in. Um, and we can't judge people on the time that they were in from, from this point. We, we need to be there with them. And these songs sort of help take us there. I mean, is there any particular song that you, you think are quite um, revealing of their time? Which, which ones sort of hit hardest the most? Well, uh, first of all, I think you're spot on, Sam, and I think what you've just said speaks to speaks to folk songs in general. I mean, that's what folk songs are. That's why we have folk songs. That's the role that they've played throughout time. You know, uh, like before, we had a written history, a culture of, of, of a written historical culture. We had an oral historical culture, um, and that. That oral historical culture was particularly strong in Ireland, and, and songs and poems were a were a particularly uh, were a particularly rich source of that here. Um, so for me, I don't I, I see this as a con, as a continuum. I see that as being directly connected with with the past and with what has come before. Um, so I don't see these as outliers. I just see it as being, as I say, um, very much in keeping with with the past and what's come before. Um, so. In terms of uh, something that's and, and 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 again, this speaks to Gareth's point earlier. So he talked about talked about um, yeah, John McCaig and Loyalist News, and um, you know, there's there's something there was something very there was something very fleeting about so much of what was in uh, that that those news sheets and also those song books. Uh, there were so many of those songs that. Just popped up once, and then they were gone. And I, and I think that's true of of so many songs in general. Um, there are very there are very few songs that last. There are very few songs that endure. The reality is that most people in most genres write a song, and then it's it disappears. It doesn't last very long. So the ones that last are the ones that are the outliers, are the the ones that are unusual in that sense. Um, but again, to connect it. To what you said, Sam, I think the the ones that last are usually the ones that speak to something important, something that happened. So, um, 
perhaps one that I can think of in the sort of rough period that we are talking about was that within loyalism as about the three Scottish soldiers, you know. Um and that's all we don't know we don't there is no clear author about uh, about who wrote it. Um I um spoke to Sylvia Pavis about it. She's the first person who recorded it. Um she told me that the song was given to her via uh, the man who played uh, the keyboard uh, for the recording and he was it was sent up to them by someone in Malayla, I think. Um, and that was shortly after uh, the soldiers were uh, were killed or murdered. Um, and uh, and that song has has endured uh, you know it's, it's still performed uh, regularly uh, to this day. As to why it endures, um, I think it's a combination of things. I think Gareth, as you've written about in, in your own work, it was it was such uh, it was such a powerfully traumatic event. The, the soldiers were so young. Um, the connection between Scotland and Northern Ireland, and particularly sort of working class within these sort of working class uh, communities, was so strong. Um, that that was it, that was so felt, particularly by the sort of young men who were were joined, were, were involved in these sort of gangs and, and paramilitary and these and paramilitary groups, um, and the coupling of all that with a well-known song for those who don't know the tune is is Silent Night, that enabled people to to really quickly learn the the lyrics and for the, that to register and for it to be learned very quickly and for it to to sort of catch on and for it to be sung. Um, and it's just a very emotional song, and and when people sing it, um, it, it you know it's it's a real tear tearjerker when you hear when you hear people sing it. A lot of the time, people stand to their feet, um, and uh, and yeah, so it was you know early seventies, and it still endures. Uh, you hear it performed regularly in in Ranger supporters clubs, loyalist social loyal social clubs, um, and uh, it's an example of of. A, a, a piece of sort of local history and and sort of broader world history as well by the, the events that connect it um, that was immortalised by by someone we don't know who exactly wrote the song um, but very much plays into those sort of folk song traditions that, that we were just talking about Sam Yes Dame there's, there's a song roughly about the same time that had a, a, a large impression of me as a child because of it's such an emotional song uh, it was Soldier uh, and it's based on on sort of this guy, Sergeant Michael Willits, um, who threw himself on top of a, an explosive device in Springfield Road RUC station and uh, saving mm-hmm. the people who were inside. The, the song itself is brilliantly written because it tells a story from start to finish. It gives you a background to the soldier involved. It tells you of his death and then the, the sort of the darkness that the sends afterwards um, and how it was celebrated and mourned. It's such a moving song that I, I I listened to it and didn't actually sort of link it to the Springfield Road, which is just over the wall kind of thing. I, I couldn't because because this was brilliance in my eyes that it was able to tell that story and the fact that it, it evoked an emotion in a, in a young lad. I mean, so the songs about that era, which were bloody, really were bloody, um, but did reflect how Belfast and Northern Ireland in general was at the time. Um, yeah, that. The, the, the three Scottish soldiers and that song go, go and both neither of those songs are loyalist you know in, in their roots they're not about the, the paramilitaries or, or the loyalist community they're about actually the soldiers who came here and, and the deaths that they met so to say that they're loyalist songs is that truly truly accurate I think that's a tricky one I, I think um, for me uh, for for me uh, I I'm I'm still not clear as to what constitute as to whether or not that would constitute a loyalist uh, song. For me, would if, if if it becomes if it becomes part of the loyalist uh, if if, lo- if if loyalists take it in and it becomes part of their repertoire, becomes part of their culture, then for me, it becomes a loyalist song. You know, if, if, you, do you know what I mean? Um, and 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 for me, like it has become that. You know, like loyalists. Love that song, like they've made it theirs. So um, it becomes it becomes a loyalist, it becomes a loyalist song for the Scottish soldiers. But I, I I do I do see your point. You know, like there's nothing um, necessarily. Uh, you know, it, it doesn't connect to paramilitarism or anything like that. You know, it's 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 more of a um, you know a sad tale about uh, about those soldiers and and 
and what happened to them, you know. It's a really interesting point, and it's making me think, you know, when Sam asks what are the songs that stand out, because I suppose there's only ver- there's only a few recordings of these songs. It's very ephemeral. We don't have a, a huge back catalogue. And for me, the two that stand out would be, obviously, Here Lies a Soldier, which is a slightly different generation, and that obviously is still pretty well known. But the one, obviously, Stephen, that we would I've talked about in my work is... Um, Born Under Union Jack, because that was the one that was published by John McCaig and became the, the basis for an incitement to hatred charge. And I mm-hmm. was lucky enough to talk to one of the people who was charged with that offence uh, last year. Um, but it, it really speaks to me all about that time period, about what other people were getting away with. I'm thinking about Bill Craig who was talking about, you know, liquidating the enemy, um, we were prepared to shoot and kill, and not once was he ever charged with incitement to hatred, whereas John McCaig and his cohort were uh, char- were charged, obviously they were never convicted, but the charges were dropped. But it shows that there's some sort of class difference there, I- I'm not sure, but it-, it brings me on to something that you talk about in one of your articles, and it is all around that re-imaging of, of uh, Loyalist paramilitary murals and the famous one in Templemore Avenue of the Loyalist prisoners and the, you know, the, the hands in the, in the handcuffs, the H blocks. And then it was reimagined with, uh, you know, uh, Tony Jones, John Calvert, Sylvia Pavis. But around that time, uh, the LPA LP was taken off Spotify and Apple for being, you know, offensive and, and promoting violence or or whatever the case might be. So what, what do you, what, there is a big class dynamic there. And, and of also I think it, it ties in with something we talked to John Barry about where sometimes loyalists aren't even reacting to what's going on across the wall. They're reacting what's going on within their own broad, broad PUL community, which again, I hate, but it's that sort of cultural cringe, the class thing. And it's it's people sort of saying, this is our culture. This is where we come from. We're proud of it. We're going to talk about it. We're going to sing about it. Um, so I actually had a wee bit of a sort of, you know, when, when that happened in 2017, I, I was part of that inadvertently because I think there was a couple of things that were scrubbed off um, Facebook that had to do with my book. So it was basically, there seemed to be a sort of, you know, purge of, of all loyalist militant related material whether it was books book book launches lps whatever so what 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 were your did you have any insight into how people felt at the time when that lp was taken off spotify and apple um well i i didn't i didn't well the first thing i would say for me the frustrating thing for me about all that was that i felt when i tried to speak when i tried when i tried to talk to uh, Spotify and Apple about it. Of course, no one responds. No one gets in touch with you or whatever when you try and uh, question them about why why they did that. Um, so you can only guess. You know, you can only guess why they, why they chose to take it down. Like presumably, someone makes a complaint. Makes it can be one complaint. I don't know. And then they take it down. Um, but. I don't know if they even investigated it or if they just decided to take it down. And I guess for me, my frustration, if you like, is or my question is that for these organisations, is it worth them investigating or is it worth them just taking it down? Because because you're in because you're in this like you're in this dangerous territory because then. Like they because they have all the power, um, and then it's ultimately up to them, you know, what they can see, what what they determine is you know acceptable and, and is allowed to be left up, um, and so if they don't even deem it worthwhile to like you know investigate, you know, which songs on it are offensive, for example, because it was a full it was the full album, it wasn't just one song or whatever that was taken down, and and it's not every song on like it's 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 not every song like there's. There's songs on that album that there's no objectionable language in, you know, um, but they took took down every single uh, track. So if if they just decide that we're taking everything off, 
um, then you're kind of on shaky ground in terms of like preserving, you know, pre- preserving local culture and local heritage. And for me, that speaks to again this sonic archive type projects or and projects like it because it's like, well, how else are you going to safeguard local history and local culture? if you then turn over to these huge multinational corporations and just hope that they'll say, we'll just preserve all this sort of stuff, uh, you know, in the long term, because ultimately, um, you know, they've shown that they can just drop everything uh, as and when they want to. And, and it's not, and that, and that was a, that was an example that was in the newspapers. That wasn't the, that was obviously wasn't the story. The story was <clears throat> that there's, there's objectionable material on here and this is why it's been removed but there's but it's happening very quietly as well on YouTube. So again, for someone like me who researches loyalist political songs, it's becoming harder and harder to find some of this sort of stuff. Um, because you know, YouTube, for example, are taking more and more of this stuff down, and people, perhaps understandably so, are growing frustrated by constantly uploading it. You know, um, so again, if pe- people complain and then they get it taken down, like you're relying on the next person to put it up. And again, all these things are becoming, like all these things form part of the culture wars, you know? So like um, it becomes, all these things become weaponized. Again, this goes back to your one of your original questions, Sam. All these songs and music become weaponized. So in the same way that loyalists will maybe go in and complain about, you know, the Sam song, for example, that Republicans would sing, and they'll maybe complain about that. Then Republicans will go on and complain about something, some loyalist song, and then you have this tit for tat. Um, but I think uh, it seems to be the case that the that, that, um, that are that there are that loyalism or loyalist songs are are, are definitely losing out, or at least there are there are there are more or there are fewer loyalist political songs now on YouTube than there were, you know, a few years ago, uh, at least in in my counting. Um, and uh, and unless your listeners won't be able to see this, but I'm ha- I'm holding up CDs. For, uh, Sam and Gareth can see. But unless you you know unless you've got hard copies uh, on your desk uh, that you can that you can refer back to, um, then you know you, you won't be able to find these. Um, and again, increasingly, that's becoming difficult because people don't have, people don't have CD players anymore. You know things yeah. like that. Um, so so again, it, it sounds kind of crazy, but. It, the, 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 we might find ourselves in a situation. It's like, well, how will we get access to this material? And again, maybe you know, people, people maybe be laughing and say, well, who cares if you don't have access to some of these songs? But again, it's, it's, there's a there's a principle there. You know, it, you know, it, it's like if you don't if you don't uh, make a fuss about it now, is at what point will you say, well, it's going to be too late? There's there's uh, there's people are complaining about it already with Netflix for um, for 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 movies, for example. Um, I read an article that was talking about uh, how you can't get movies. There's no, there's hardly any movies on Netflix that were uh, published before 1950, for example. Um, and again, this is just part of a, a, a broader trend within society and again within popular culture, whereby um, these large platforms are, are making decisions for us. Yeah. It's really interesting because I mean, it, it talks about talks to me about how. I suppose Republican culture, Irish nationalist culture has been better projecting a, a more universal appeal, and that, that's maybe one of the things that plays into this debate around the wolf tones. Um, I was thinking about, when you were talking about Platoon, it reminded me of a conversation I had with a Scottish friend who was, like, he was in the band scene, he, you know, he actually said to me, um, I'm just looking at some notes that he sent me a long time ago, and he basically said, you know, for him, the UVF was like a football team that he followed, and Platoon. At that, at that period, all the other teenagers in his uh, friendship circle would have been talking about Blur and Oasis. So it would have been like mid nineties up Blur and Oasis rivalry. But for him, it was yeah. Platoon, and he, he said he went to see them a hundred times, over a hundred times, from like a tiny social club in Paisley right up the Edmiston House at Ibrox, and that was just his world. He, you know, but but. To me, it's something we've talked about before. It's that sort of pop. It's popular culture in a narrow sense, I suppose, where everything else is framed by that sort of ongoing, you know, the cool Britannia, Britpop. Whereas in this world that my friend lived in, this was popular culture, the football reference, the platoon. But, and it was interesting the point you made there because I'd never really thought about it in that sense that Gusty 
was trying to provide people with the cultural resource to sort of push things forward in a, in a non-militant sense. You know, here's the politics, here's the cultural resources. And we've talked plenty, myself and Sam, about why the PUP never took off and the limitations of that political ideology and, and how it never transferred into the broader unionist community. But it's making me think, why did Platoon never achieve, say, the mainstream success that the Wolftones have achieved on, on the Republican side? Well, I th- the, fir- the, uh, the first thing I would just say is, just to just to finish off what I was saying before, in the sense, you, so you mentioned the Wolftones and you'd said about, um, uh, so just to say, I think you, Irish Rebel songs are safe now, but who's to say they'll be safe forever? You know, so this, so just to sort of wrap that up, you know, I, so that connects directly with what we were saying about loyalist songs being taken down from YouTube and all the rest of it. We've already seen in Scotland that you know a government can come in and they can criminalise the singing of certain songs and whatnot, and 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 make life very difficult for people who perform songs that are deemed to be objectionable or offensive or sectarian, um, and those some of those songs fit, fitted into that category. So. You know, I would I would sort of caution people to be uh, you know that you know, tastes can change and 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 you know rebel songs could be uh, people singing them could be, could get in trouble as, as well you know so um, so it's always tastes change um, as as far as as far as um, as far as the other uh, uh, as far as your other uh, question goes as far as platoon goes I mean. I think that that's a bigger question about loyalism more generally. I mean, loyalism never had the sort of international appeal republicanism had for for lots of reasons that are, are probably too big to cover in, in, in this episode in of itself. Um, but one thing I would probably just say um, is that just to, to go back to Gusty Spence, and I can quote from one of the members of Platoon just now, um, was that like he was emphatic about what platoon should be doing? Um, so so in this in this interview with uh, with Bobby Hanvey, for example, Gusty Spence, in his own words, Gusty Spence had said to Bobby Hanvey, "What I insisted on when he was setting up platoon, what I insisted on as far as in me lay, and over which I had some jurisdiction, was that the songs would not be offensive. The songs would be the songs would be recounting aspects of history, so on and so forth." We've had enough up to our neck in Fenian blood and up to our neck in orange blood. We've had enough of those songs. What we wanted to do is for those songs to reflect the culture. And then when I interviewed members of the band, um, one of them had said to me, uh, when he was talking about uh, setting up the band, he said, and I'm quoting, he said, Gusty came out and he gave us a song called Loyal Heart, right? That was for his mother. And then he wrote one called Ulster Girl, which was for his wife. He wrote that in jail. He wrote Daddy's Uniform, which is his son, Andrew. Uh, and he, and we put the music to it. That song was about a uniform that the YCVs wore during the First World War. It was about the Ulster Volunteer Force, which was formed before the First World War. It was nothing to do with sectarianism. We cut out anything that said Fenian, and we used, and we used to say, well, you cut that out, say rebel, don't say that. And then he continued, he said, we never sung the sash. The crowd would sing it. We let them sing it, but we never done it because that was an amateur song. We we tried to be a professional loyalist band, you know, cut out the pub singer, but we never brought a pub singer into the band. I was one of the ones to say, for example, no, don't bring him, don't bring him in. He's a pub singer. I mean, I heard other different bands, pub singers do that loyalist stuff, but we were professionals. We were writing our own stuff, and the flute bands were playing our stuff. So I'm just using those examples to say that, like, this was like a concerted effort that they had to sort of bring this project forward and say like this is different you know like, we're trying to bring loyalism forward type thing you know like it wasn't you know it, it, it didn't happen by accident it, it wasn't just sort of um it, it, it wasn't random you know like it was the result there was considerable time effort and resources that were plowed into this p- political project to make um to, to, you know to propel it forward you know yeah, I, th- I think it's, it's interesting what you're saying that Gusty was actually thinking on on many fronts around that period. The PUP was in his sort of coming up to the day as such. Uh, he had this cultural idea that going on at the same time. So Gusty was approaching, I suppose, his war in, in different avenues. Going to fight it on the cultural side. Going to going to fight it on on the political side. Um, 
one of the songs that Platoon used to do, um, which which we always got me thinking, was uh, the Battalion of the Dead, and and basically it's, it's just a monologue really of of volunteers from the UVF that had died over the years, but it kept growing. And yeah. they, to me, that was quite telling of its time because it wasn't a historical. It it was it was historical and contemporary because they were adding to that battalion year by year at, at one point. So those kind of songs weren't written to stay written. They were written to evolve with with the band uh, and Platoon certainly carried that forward. And I and I can reflect on what you're saying about they didn't sing anything offensive. They they didn't really. They did. I'm trying to. Th- I'm racking my brain to think of a song that they they may have sang that would have been deemed offensive. And I can't. I can understand why people don't like the music and don't like the song content, but they didn't go out of their way to antagonise. I mean, I can think of a few examples where they sort of broke their own rules, right? But but by and large, I, I, I accept the um, I, I accept the, the the principle of what they were tr- trying to do, you know, and I, and I think. Um, and, and I think that 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 principle was was was, was certainly well meaning. And again, you've also got to you've also got to compare it to where they were coming from. I, I think you know you you know it's one thing to sit here in two thousand and twenty three and sort of shine that light on them. But I mean, you're talking about a very different uh, uh, political and historical time that they were operating within and trying to bring the people with you. You know, and that's the key. You know, if, if you if you did you know if you to if you to try and apply today's standards to then i don't think it would work you know you you, you have to you have to bring the people you have to bring the people with you and be convincing and i just wanted to jump back into what gareth said about why have the wolf tones been more sort of mainstream even even on inside their own communities um the wolf tones i think sort of crossed class if you want they were accepted by the middle class republicans um where i think the likes of platoon and those loyalist tunes were kept working class. They were kept within the ghettos, and they weren't accepted. And again, we go back to that class snobbery between the difference between unionism and loyalism, and how there, there is that snobbery that the whole John spoke about the word flag. How some people looked down on loyalism, so the, the music itself was looked down upon as well, even though it was reflective of the time, uh, and it did come from that community. So I can understand why unionism couldn't buy into it if you want to look at middle class unionism because it didn't reflect the lives that they were leading at the time. Um, it certainly spoke more of the people of the Shankill, the Lower Newtonard Road, Sandy Road, Portadown, Larne, that kind of area. Um, it would have been hard to cross those lines and, and, and appeal to middle class unionism who seen themselves above what was going on at the time. Yeah, I think I think there's a there's a huge class component both within loyalism itself, obviously, and then within its the, the, the sort of cultural component. Uh, that, that comes with it, of course. Well, thanks, Stephen. I really appreciate that chat tonight. And we could have gone on for another hour. And undoubtedly, when the book comes out, if you're happy enough to come back on, we'll we'll do another one. My pleasure. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Is there any update on the book? Um, can you give us an idea of when it will be out, or is that still under wraps? Uh, I've got um, so I'm, I'm it's six chapters and I've written four chapters, so there's two more to go, um, and uh, I so I hope hope to have those two two written within the next uh, six six to nine months or so. Um, but uh, but as I say, if, if anyone if anyone listening has any has any materials um, that they, they would like to to donate um, or 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 at least part with for a short period of time so they can be photocopied or scanned or, or something then if they could get in touch with Sam or Gareth yourselves that would be fantastic um, and again you know it's just to share with with, with everyone and um, just so we can bring this resource to everybody that would be great. Yeah, I mean, it's really important. The website there is, is sonicarchive.net is it is it just stored online is there any other way people can access this? It's just all online at the moment. We're hoping that uh, we're hoping that eventually we'll find a physical home for it, um, so that people can can actually come in and 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 sort of and look through some of this stuff. Um, but at the moment, it's uh, it's, it's it's just online. Uh, and and any any thoughts on maybe doing a roadshow with it? <laughs> uh, I don't know. It's all, all, always nice to get to go out and about, um, but uh, but I that. And part part of it, as I say, big part of it is just so that people don't have to travel as well. Um, just yeah. for for folk that that can't get here for financial reasons or or logistical reasons or whatever. Well, Stephen, it's been absolutely fascinating talking to you. It's, it's an area where 
it's a as Gary said, it's a subculture of a subculture of a subculture, and it's it's fascinating, and I, and I love it. I can speak to you for hours on this subject, and hopefully, we'll get a catch up at some point before the book comes out, just to see how things are going. Thanks, guys. Pleasure. Thanks, Steve. Good night, night. Good night.